Hello, I'm Dr. Luis Ostrowski, Chair of the Guidelines Committee for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. I would like to welcome you to IDSA's Clinical Guidelines podcast series, where we will regularly keep you up to date on new guidelines published by IDSA. Leading this program is Dr. Neil Skolnick, who's a professor of family and community medicine at Temple University School of Medicine and the associate director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at Abington Memorial Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Skolnick. Thank you. Today we're going to review the highlights of the IDSA clinical practice guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of native vertebral osteomyelitis in adults that was published in the September issue 2015 of Clinical Infectious Diseases. Native vertebral osteomyelitis is the most common form of hematogenous osteomyelitis in patients aged greater than 50 years old. The diagnosis of native vertebral osteomyelitis is difficult. It requires many different modalities, often including serologic, radiologic, and microbiologic testing. The diagnosis also is often delayed, often several months, and may initially be misdiagnosed and mismanaged simply as a degenerative process because it's causing back pain. Typically, it's diagnosed in the setting of persistent back pain that's unresponsive to conservative measures, and then someone decides to look into it uh, in more detail and finds an elevated inflammatory markers. The patient may or may not have fever, and then often other studies are done. Plain radiographs of the spine are not very sensitive. MRIs are often needed to make the diagnosis, but diagnosis is really essential so that appropriate treatment can be started. Joining us today is the chair of the Native Vertebral Osteomyelitis Guidelines Committee, Dr. Ellie Burberry. Dr. Burberry is a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Burberry. Thank you, Neil. Let's uh, organize our discussion according to the questions that were really outlined very nicely in the guidelines. And uh, the first question is, when should we entertain the diagnosis of native vertebral osteomyelitis? This is a very important question. And uh, uh, patients may present with back pain um, that sometimes is overlooked as either due to a degenerative process or a, a muscle sprain or something of that nature and may go on untreated for a number of weeks. Um, the key here is to have an ongoing pain uh, really that is not responsive to the typical therapy, NSAIDs, rest, and other things. In this setting, one may want to do a SED rate and CRP. If they are elevated, that might be the cue to proceed with more uh, invasive testing or radiologic testing to make the diagnosis. Um, what is the appropriate diagnostic evaluation for patients uh, in whom this is suspected? When we suspect native vertebral osteomyelitis, um, the next most important step is to obtain an MRI imaging of the spine. Uh, this is uh, possible uh, in most patients, especially if they don't have a contraindication such as a pacemaker or a claustrophobia. Uh, the MRI is now considered the gold standard for the diagnosis in North America. Uh, it will show changes uh, that are on the end plate. The infection usually settled between the disc and the vertebral body in an area called the end plate. This is where it starts and then kind of erodes up and down in the vertebral body, and these changes are very uh, 
prominent and and uh, uh, although sometimes they can be seen in other processes such such as tumor infection is usually the most common cause of these changes okay and when should a biopsy be done and how should it be best done so this is uh, would be the next step. So after you've done the MRI and you think you have an infection, uh, the next step you should ask yourself, you know, should we get a CT-guided aspiration? Uh, before we do that, I, it's important that we get two sets of blood cultures because in about half uh, of the patients, 50% of the patients, uh, we will have um, a bacteremia. Uh, when that is the case, uh, then we really don't need to proceed with a CT-guided uh, aspirate, especially in the setting of Staph aureus uh, plus germ infection. If the blood cultures are negative, then, then mo the next step would be to proceed with a CT-guided aspirate. The aspirate will need to be sent for cultures and also for cytology or cells to look for the presence of neutrophils or inflammations and to rule out the uh, other possibilities such as tumors or mats. Okay, and then um, as you're doing this workup, should you withhold antimicrobial therapy or, or go right ahead with uh, doing both at once? So this is an important question that the panel did discuss at length. Um, and, you know, very often patients may present with low-grade temperature or feel generally unwell, and, and they might receive a course of antibiotic um, either for these nonspecific symptoms or sometimes even for uh, a URI or UTI. Um, and when they present to us, they've received a course of that antibiotic, and we're kind of rest to... Uh, deal with this decision um, and kind of to decide whether or not to proceed right away or to delay the uh, biopsy. When possible, if the patient is not hemodynamically um, unstable uh, or if, if there's no sepsis or if there's not an imminent epidural or spinal cord uh, uh, impingement, uh, the goal is to hold the antibiotics for a minimum of one to two weeks before doing the CT-guided aspirate. Uh, this will uh, increase the chances of um, obtaining uh, a def definitive microbiologic diagnosis. That makes a lot of sense and often uh, requires a lot of restraint in uh, explaining this to colleagues. Uh, when is it appropriate to send uh, fungal, mycobacterial, or brucella cultures? Um, this is another important question, and we're not recommending that this be done on the majority of patients. In certain patients who are coming from endemic areas or in patients where we think this, they would be at specific risk for these infections, then it would be appropriate to, uh, to send these cultures. So in immunocompromised patients and patients coming from areas that are endemic for TB or brucella, obtaining specific uh, microbiologic uh, cultures w would be appropriate. This is not the case in the majority of patients that we see in this country. Okay. And then how about if your image-guided aspiration biopsy is unrevealing? What, what should we do then? This is a fairly common scenario, and I am often asked about this. Um, you know, knowing that the sensitivity of the cultures on the aspirate is about 50%, uh, so in about half of our patients, the culture results are going to be negative after the first attempt. Uh, we're often um, 
uh, finding ourselves in this situation, then, and then we kind of go back to the patients and, and ask them again, did you receive any antibiotics? Because often this is a case. Uh, but also wondering about other unusual infections, such as discussed uh, a minute or so ago about you know TB and brucella and other unusual infections. If this is not the case, we often recommend either a repeat biopsy or uh, repeating an open biopsy. This would increase the overall yield uh, to maybe 80 or 90 percent. That, that makes a lot of sense, and then we're getting up where, with repeated biopsies, the yield is uh, uh, almost, but not quite, a hang you, your hat on it sort of thing. When when is it appropriate to use uh, empiric antimicrobial therapy? This just goes back to you know some of the original questions that you've asked, and I think it would be appropriate to use empiric antimicrobial therapy. Uh, when the patient is septic, uh, when the patient has a large epidural abscess and it's impinging on the spinal cord, in this setting we don't have the luxury of waiting and we would recommend that empiric antimicrobial therapy be used. Okay. And then uh, uh, once having started therapy, either as we talked about when we do that empirically or more often, hopefully, once we found uh, the organism, uh, what is the recommended duration of therapy? This has uh, been debated for a while, Neil, and um, uh, in the past, uh, most of us would give 8, 12, even 12 weeks of therapy for these patients. A recent study from France has uh, done uh, has showed that uh, 6 weeks uh, was equivalent to 12 weeks using a randomized clinical trial. So the panel um, is recommending that most patients with bacterial infections, this is usually the staph and your strep and your gram-negatives, be treated with six weeks of uh, directed antimicrobial therapy. Fantastic. And then the question at the end of that therapy, of course, is how do you define failure? Because many of these patients will continue to have back pain, uh, but they don't necessarily continue to have infection. How do we separate that? This is a, a very difficult and important question that a clinician is often faced with. Um, you know, we have to understand that a lot of these patients um, started with degenerative joint disease on the back or some of them might have needed surgery. Um, more than half or so uh, typically require surgical debridement. Um, so they're often left with pain, uh, sometimes so severe, requiring chronic narcotic use. Um, so we're, you know, we see them at six weeks, and then we're asking ourselves: Is the pain related to an ongoing infection, or is it related to just the surgery and the uh, degenerative process that's resulting from from uh, the infection? Um, so we have a few tools that we can use and rely on. One is um, uh, the inflammation markers. So we would, do recommend that the inflammation markers be repeated at about four to six weeks uh, into therapy. Uh, we look for about 50% uh, or so reduction in the SED rate um, uh, and the CRP around that time. If that is taking place, we're uh, often reassured that the pain is probably related to uh, to uh, degenerative and uh, causes and not an ongoing infection. 
the MRI is tricky, and, and we often do it, but uh, uh, the problem with the MRI is that it can really uh, mislead you down a path um, where, where you may uh, find yourself uh, you know, doing repeating biopsies and so on where it's really not needed. We do know that about a third of our patients who have a repeat MRI will uh, have worsening changes, especially around the bone. About a third will show improvement, and about a third will be equivocal. And the majority of the patients are actually clinically cured. Um, so we do re reserve the MRI to really in cases where uh, the, the inflammation markers are going up or there's ongoing persistent pain, um, and, and not so when the inflammation markers are improving and or the pain is improving. It makes a lot of sense. It sounds in many ways uh, similar to something we see more often, uh, pneumonia, where if you get a chest X-ray too soon in follow-up, you'll see evidence of the prior infection that is difficult to distinguish from ongoing versus prior infection. That is true. Um, you know, there is a lag, and, and sometimes it's, it's worsening, uh, and the lag is much longer than pneumonia. So th this was incredibly helpful. That is possibly one of the most concise, complete overviews of native vertebral osteomyelitis. We've gone over both diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment, as well as uh, follow-up. So I think this will be incredibly helpful for our listeners. Uh, Dr. Burberry, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. For the Infectious Diseases Society of America, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick. Thanks for listening.